There's so much to remember. So hard. How do people what make did it that through professor this? Professor saying, professor I want to be a neocardiologist. Marular filtration rate, Bart pediatrics, geriatrics, but what's going to be heart rate, high fowlers, low fowlers. Some say that nursing school is the hardest thing that they've ever done. I'm Dr. Hobbick, and I am a passionate nurse and a passionate nurse educator, and I'm here to help. Join me on Nursing with Dr. Hobbick as I review topics and highlights from nursing school and try to help nursing students become confident nurses and provide the safest, best quality patient care that's possible. Hey, and welcome to Nursing with Dr. Hobbick. Today is going to be a longer episode because we're going to dive into the neurologic system. The first thing that we're going to talk about is the Glasgow Coma Scale. You should be familiar with this scale. You should have a good idea of it, if not have it memorized. It's going to measure eye opening, either spontaneously, to verbal commands, to pain or no response. It measures motor responses to a verbal command, to painful stimuli. Do they localize with pain, flex or withdraw? Do flexor posturing or decorticate? extensor posturing, which is decerebate, or no response, and then a verbal response. Does the patient uh, respond to you oriented and converse? Are they disoriented but conversing? Are they using inappropriate words, incomprehensible sounds, or no response? Something to keep in mind is the maximum total for the Glasgow Coma Scale is 15. The minimum is 3, 7 or less indicates coma. 7 or less indicates a coma. The lower the score, the less conscious the patient is. The higher the score, the better. People who have a scores greater than 8 usually have a better prognosis for recovery. Let's talk about altered states of consciousness while we're talking about this Glasgow Coma Scale. So you're going to use the Glasgow Coma Scale to measure altered states of consciousness. It's much more specific then ambiguous terms like somnolent, obtunded. We kind of want to avoid stuporous, lethargic. Those are ambiguous. They're not very, very specific. This Glasgow Coma Scale is much more specific, so make sure that you're familiar with it. Um, When you're doing an assessment for someone with an altered level of consciousness, you also want to do, of course, regular vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, SpO2. Sometimes it's an oxygen problem. Sometimes it's a perfusion problem. There could be a lot of things going on. So we want to make sure we get as many assessment pieces as we can. So get your tools out. Pupil size, limb movement. Of course, our vital signs, you want to check skin integrity, corneal integrity. We want to check for bladder fullness. This is a big one to keep in mind for altered level of consciousness or patients with spinal cord injury, that we want to check that bladder for fullness. And we're going to put an indwelling catheter in if we have to, or do straight casts, whatever's ordered. We want to make sure we're listening to lung sounds and cardiac sounds and cardiac status. And of course, you're going to want to find out, is this normal for this patient? Talk to family or a secondary source to find out. These patients are at high risk for aspiration, so we typically are going to feed them enterally or parenterally. So we might see a feeding tube, and we need to remember the correct process for feedings. Number one, checking placement of an enteral tube via auscultation. You know, those old school nurses told you to put your stethoscope on the patient's belly and push some air in. That doesn't work. 
There's plenty of research to support that that is not effective. It doesn't tell you if the, if the tube is in the right place. Don't use it. You want to use observation and pH strips. So if your facility doesn't have those, advocate for them. The gold standard is x-ray, so make sure there's an x-ray on file that shows you the tube is in the right place. We don't get an x-ray every time we check the patient, though. So when we get ready to go do any kind of insertion of anything into an enteral tube, medications, feedings, you want to check placement, and you're going to do that by aspirating gastric contents, checking the pH of those contents, and then you want to make sure that you are checking residual if you're doing enteral feedings. Residual is the residue, the leftovers, the amount that's left after the patient has been a certain period of time. Usually there's an order that tells you how often to check residuals. In my experience, it's like every four hours, or I would check them whenever I'm going to access the tube. What you're going to do is aspirate everything out of the tube that you can. If you have to, use a graduated cylinder to hold those contents. If there's a hundred or more or whatever your facility policy is, that indicates that we may not have good gastric emptying. So checking placement is with pH. Checking gastric emptying is with that gastric residual. Now, it's really important for you to put that gastric residual back. Number one, it's partially digested. Number two, it's got acid in it. If you take all that acid away from your patient, what's going to happen? Alkalosis. So put all that back in there and follow your facility policy on notifying the provider. We want to make sure that we understand that if the patient is comatose, a lot of the times they're going to experience paralytic ileus, meaning that the intestines are not moving. So we're not going to do any kind of insertion, any feeding or anything if there's no bowel sounds. So you're always going to check bowel sounds before you access a tube. If the patient has paralytic ileus, we're probably using uh, NG tube for gastric decompression. So it's going to be to usually low intermittent suction. When our patient has an altered level of consciousness, you have to make sure that you are working to prevent all of those side effects or complications of immobility. You're doing range of motion every four hours. You're turning the patient at minimum every two. Remember the two hours is a minimum mark. If you can turn them every hour, that's way better. I like to coordinate with my uh, aides or my unlicensed assistive personnel that they go in every two hours, I go in every two hours, and we stagger it so that we can get that patient moved around every hour. I guarantee this patient is at risk just because of their condition, and so two hours may be too long. We want to try to get them turned as much as we can. If you anticipate that there's going to be intubation or if there's a problem with the airway, insert an oral airway or... Of course, you're going to call a rapid response and that'll all get taken care of. We're going to monitor PO2 and PCO2. We want to make sure that we are keeping these patients NPO. If your patient has a sudden change in level of consciousness, NPO is the way to go. We don't want to put anything in their mouth and then aspirate. So make sure that you're keeping them NPO. And we're going to do mouth care every four hours on patients who are NPO because we want to keep that area clean. Of course, we want to make sure that we're recording intake and output, and then to avoid those complications, turning our patient's range of motion, maybe advocate for sequ sequential compression devices or elastic compression stockings because we want to prevent those DVTs. Urinary calculi is a complication of immobility, so in making sure that they're getting enough fluid intake, either gastric, PO, or IV, making sure we're checking that urine-specific gravity to see if it's high, making sure we're keeping an eye on intake and output over a 24-hour period, and 
if possible, apply splints, like for foot drop, to prevent that, to prevent wrist drop. You'll coordinate with your provider for those things. Keeping an eye on our vital signs is going to be important because we're also monitoring potentially for increased intracranial pressure. Any change in heart rate that goes down below 60 or above 100 could indicate that. We want to make sure that we're keeping an eye on blood pressure. The blood pressure is going up or we have a widening pulse pressure. Remember that that can indicate increased ICP. Any temperature abnormalities could indicate the patient's getting worse. You can monitor their temperature. We want to make sure that we are continuing to use the Glasgow Coma Scale to measure the level of consciousness and we're keeping an eye on those pupils. Preventing injury, of course, we're always keeping the bed in low position. Side rails up at all times. Make sure that you are patting those rails if the patient is a safety risk or a seizure risk. And we want to be really careful about monitoring for over-sedation because that can impact our vital signs and our assessment. Disguise worsening condition. So make sure that you're keeping an eye on that. Whenever you're touching a patient with an altered state of consciousness... It doesn't matter how deep they are, you're talking to them, you're telling them what you're doing, constantly talking to the patient. Even if you think they're totally in a coma, you're still going to talk to them and let them know what you're doing. Let them know that you're going to touch them. Let them know you're doing a bath, whatever it is you're doing. We still want to make sure that we're doing hygiene, uh, grooming, bathing. Oral hygiene is going to be super important wash their hair, provide nail care if they need it. We want to make sure that we are checking their eyes for corneal injury. If the eyes are not able to, if the patient's blink reflex is gone, you want to make sure the eyes stay closed. And we're going to keep those irrigated, maybe with sterile solution that's prescribed or instilling an ointment in their eyes, whatever's ordered by the provider. So keep those things in mind for your altered level of consciousness. Next, let's talk about traumatic brain injury or head injuries. We have a head injury, which is any traumatic damage to the head. You can have an open traumatic brain injury, of course. This is where we've got a fracture in the skull or penetration by an object or closed. Closed is more serious because we can have swelling and or bleeding inside the brain, inside the skull, and that, uh, that doesn't give. The skull doesn't give at all, and that can increase intracranial pressure, which can then cause a decrease in actual blood flow to the brain because those capillaries and stuff, uh, arteries get compressed. The biggest concern that you're going to have, the worst complication is going to be increased intracranial pressure, which we've already addressed just a little bit ago. Things that you're going to keep an eye on are going to be their uh, symptoms, so unconsciousness, disturbances in consciousness, they may have vertigo, confusion, delirium, they may be disoriented. This should sound very familiar because we're going to use the Glasgow Coma Scale here to measure the patient worsening or improvement, hopefully. Change in level of responsiveness is the most important symptom of increasing intracranial pressure. Again, that's that change in level of responsiveness. So if you have any kind of change in a patient who's had a head injury, you're going to want to report that stat. Even subtle changes like restlessness, irritability, or confusion that's worsening or new, that can indicate that increased ICP. Again, we're watching pulse for elevation or decrease, watching blood pressure if it's going up or if there's a widening pulse pressure temperature rise. We want to make sure we control that if we can. We may see headache, vomiting, 
pupillary changes. We want to keep an eye on those seizures, ataxia, abnormal posturing. This is where that decerebrate or decorticate comes in. Any leaking of cerebrospinal fluid, either through the nose or the ear. Remember that we can tell that by the halo sign or it's got glucose in it. The normal mucus does not. Hematomas may be something that we see. And if a patient has a CSF leak, that can actually keep them from demonstrating those normal signs of increased ICP. They may not occur. Want to keep an eye out for those things. CT MRI scan is going to show either an epidural or subdural hematoma. If it requires surgery, we may get an EEG to measure for seizure activity. And what you're going to do as the nurse, you're going to monitor oxygen, PO2, PCO2. We're looking for hypoxia or hypercapnia. We want to make sure that we're positioning the client semi-prone or lateral recumbent to help prevent aspiration, especially if they're vomiting. We'll make sure you're preventing those complications of immobility. I'm not going to go over those again. We heard those just a little bit ago. We're going to do neurologic vital signs frequently. And if we have any signs of deterioration, we're going to notify the provider right away. We want to avoid anything that's going to increase intracranial pressure. So changing bed position, extreme hip flexion, suctioning, endotracheal suctioning, compression of the jugular veins. You want to make sure you keep the head straight in that natural position, not turned to one side or the other. A coughing, vomiting, straining, no valsalvas, those can all increase endocrineal pressure. If the patient has a temperature increase, you want to make sure that you address it right away. Whatever is ordered, usually it's acetaminophen or Tylenol. We want to get that into the patient, a cooling blanket if needed, because an increase in temperature is going to increase cerebral blood flow, which is going to cause an increase in ICP, especially if it's already happening. So we want to make sure that we're not doing that. Now, there is such a thing as an intracranial monitoring system. This is a catheter that's inserted into the lateral ventricle, and there's a sensor there uh, placed on the dura or a screw into the subarachnoid space that's attached to a pressure transducer. We want to make sure that we notify the provider stat of anything over 20 millimeters mercury. Of course, we might be giving some medications, hyperosmotic agents and diuretics to dehydrate the brain, excuse me, dehydrate the brain or to prevent cerebral edema. Mannitol is one of the big ones. Urea is another one. Steroids, we might be giving dexamethasone or methylprednisolone, sodium succinate. Barbiturates are actually going to reduce brain metabolism and systemic BP. And those are things that we're going to keep an eye on. Of course, intake and output is going to be really important, especially if they're on osmotic diuretics. We may have uh, passive hyperventilation on a ventilator that's going to lead to respiratory alkalosis, which is going to cause cerebral vasoconstriction. And then we're going to continue our uh, seizure precautions. They may order phenytoin just as a prophylactic for seizures. And then we want to make sure that we're talking to the patient about post-traumatic syndrome, headaches, vertigo, emotional instability, inability to concentrate, impaired memory. They could have post-traumatic epilepsy or even post-traumatic neurosis or psychosis. So that is traumatic brain injury, and we'll move on to spinal cord injury next. Thanks for hanging out with me today on Nursing with Dr. Hobbick. I hope you enjoy. I'll see you next time with spinal cord injuries. Hey, this is Dr. Hobbick. First, I want to say thank you for listening. This podcast is intended for nursing students to help them understand concepts that they're learning in nursing school, and maybe for students who just graduated and want to refresh on concepts, or nurses who just want to listen. 
Anyway, I do want to thank you for listening, but I also want to say that by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. I want to encourage you to consult with your own physician for any issues you may be having. They will be your best source of information that is accurate and consistent and uh, based on research and evidence. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Nursing with Dr. Hobbick.